Well, earlier we saw in Philippians where Paul had said, don't complain or Old King James says murmur or disputing, that's mumbling in yourself or amongst other people, sort of under your breath. And if you just don't do that, you'll appear as lights in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. Crazy to, to get it that our world is, is so dark and has no hope without God, without hope in this world that they're just sort of always on a constant irritation level. We, we know that, especially in Southern California, right? I mean, uh, and, and we're not to be that way. If we're stuck on the freeway, we're in the Lord's timing. God's given us time to, to pray more, to listen to the Christian radio, or uh, to text. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Do not text while you're driving. Um, but... God's given us this, this opportunity, and we're, so we're, we're to rejoice in everything, and in everything give thanks. And basically, Paul is going to give us an example of that in himself, in Timothy, and then Epaphroditus, who was one of Paul's team, but he actually came from Philippi. And uh, we're going to see that in four verses in a row, he says rejoice in each of them. In verse 17, we pick up here today in verse 18. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering and the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Paul first gives the description of what happens at the end of a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, you can read it, it is when you are at the end of sacrificing a sheep or a ram or a bull, you were to do a drink offering or you pour out some wine, depending on how much, uh, depending on the size of the animal and so forth, um, and that's the end of the sacrifice when you finally pour out some wine there in the offering. And Paul is, is saying here, that he feels that that's where he is at. There's nothing left. I've been sacrificing and there is nothing left for me to sacrifice. And that all that's left is the little bit of, usually it's a quart if it's a, a ram. If it's a bigger bull, it's a couple of quarts. Uh, a hen is what they say, but it's a, a quart. A hen is a quart and, and two hens is two quarts. You would just pour it out um, as a drink offering. Now, uh, the first one to ever do this was Jacob in, in Genesis 35. But then in the law, they were commanded to do this with wine. In Numbers 15, just to give you a little taste of this, in, in verse 10, Numbers 15, 10, And you shall bring as the drink offering half a hen, which is two quarts, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus referred to this. So Paul, in referring it to the Jewish Gentile church, it appears that the Gentile believers understood the Old Testament as well 
and the sacrificial system. It didn't seem like Paul was just saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of my faith, that they didn't have any idea. Like, what is he talking about? It seemed that they did have that. And we're going through Genesis. We're going to go through Exodus. We're going to go through Leviticus and Numbers. And we're going to talk about these things. So all the word of God, you know. But um, it's interesting that we see this in Jesus' life and ministry as well. Um, before the cross, um, we, we see this metaphor in the Garden of Gethsemane when um, the blood and the water began to come off Jesus' face. It wasn't thick like blood, it was watery. Again, that, that look almost like wine. But when you think about it, when they came to arrest Jesus, and of course it was night, all they had was a torch, and, of course, in those days, your body's pretty much covered. All that would be exposed is your feet, your hands, and your face. So as they looked upon Jesus, they would have saw this watery, bloody, it looked like somebody splashed wine in his face. He's at the end of his ministry. We see him being poured out. It's this drink offering but definitely upon the cross. Remember, the drink offering was the last part of the sacrifice. So when you were finished with the lamb sacrifice or the ram sacrifice or the bull sacrifice, the final part is you poured out the wine as a drink offering. And think of Jesus. What was the last thing on the cross done to him? They came and they poked him in the side. And what came out? Water and blood. Again, a color, a texture, looking very much like wine. In Luke 22, 20, it says, This cup which is poured out for you is the blood of the new covenant. So Jesus, when he gave communion, he is saying, this is my blood. And here at the end of my time of, with you in ministry, it's over. As you drink of this, this is me and my blood being poured out as a new covenant. It's beginning the new covenant. You say, what was the, the wine? Why did they pour out wine at the end of the sacrifice? Because the Lord is saying, when that Old Testament law ends, a new covenant will begin. How does that new covenant begin? In his blood. And so, why do we pour out the wine? I I have no idea. It's because it's prophesying that this sacrificial system will be done away with when there's the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, and a new covenant begins in his blood. And this is what it is prophesying. And this is what he said in communion. In the New American Standard, Liddy says, the cup which I is poured out for you, poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And then, of course, Jesus on the cross, when they pierced him, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, um, flowed out, poured out from his side. And that was the final act. The, the drink offering, so to speak. He was, it was finished. He had said it's finished, and he died, and they still came and poked him in the side. 
because of the drink offering that was being offered in the final act of that sacrifice. So Paul saw himself in this same way. He told us to give our bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, uh, acceptable, worthy unto God, that we would know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul said, follow my example. You are following Jesus' example. Follow me as I follow Christ. And he saw himself being spent over and over again where there was nothing left. Remember in 2 Corinthians, he said, I, I had nothing left. I was pushed above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life itself. I, I, the death uh, sentence was within me. But somehow I was, I was resurrected. And then in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he says the same thing. There was a thorn in my flesh and I had nothing left. And I was sort of scolding God. <laughs> saying, what can I do in this body if I'm in this state? And finally, the Lord said, hey, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. But Paul saw his life as a living sacrifice. And that's why he says right here in verse 17, I am being poured out now as a drink offering. The end of my service is coming, interesting the very last chapter Paul would ever write is 2 Timothy chapter 4, right? We know right after he wrote that, he actually went to the cross. I mean, he went and was beheaded. He was put to death. But listen in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved his appearing. Wow. Isn't that awesome? That we really have been a sacrifice? That we, we don't get to the end of our life and we haven't lived the sacrifice life that we've lived for pleasure while we are alive. We, we've lived for this world. We, we add God into the world some, and we're saved, but yet there's not that fruit where Paul says, 100%, my, for me to live is Christ. I'm seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. That's it. There is nothing else. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And now he's come to the end of his life and he just says, every day I've denied myself, taken up the cross. I've lived the crucified life. I've lived the sacrificial life. And now I'm here in prison. I've written all I'm to write. I'm saying all I'm to say. I've preached all I'm to preach. And now they're going to take me. And the final act is going to be the drink offering poured out. And I'm glad that I am being poured out. The last bit is going to be poured out as I stand before Nero and the crowd and they behead me and, and give that final word. And I am being poured out. And what does he say to that? I am glad and rejoice with you all. Interesting. Paul's going to tell them, rejoice now with me in the same way. We're, we're, I'm not... I'm not giving you this funeral dirge. Oh, got to live the sacrifice life. Oh, poor is me. 
man, I used to have so much fun before I became a Christian. But now as a Christian, you know, we've got to sacrifice our life. No, Paul's going, life couldn't be better. There, there is no more joyful of a life than to be in Christ and in him to live and move and have our being. There, there's no greater joy than to roll out of bed on your knees and just say, Lord, today's the day you've made. I'm alive. Thank you for this gift. But I'm alive because you predestined good works that I would walk in today. And Lord, I want to do that. Help me. I think of Jabez's prayer so often. Lord, bless me. <laughs> Enlarge in my territory. I just want to know your hands on me, steering me, blessing me. And then keep me from evil that I don't cause pain. Man, Lord, I don't want to be swayed by this Sodom Gomorrah. I don't want to be corrupted in this place. Yes, our soul like lots, the righteous soul is vexed every day. But Lord, we want to live in such a way that our kids can see our life. And it'd be so powerful it would overcome all of those in this wicked place. But unfortunately, Lot's wife did, had a divided heart, didn't she? I hear David crying out of the Psalms twice, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Because I love the world and I love you. But I shouldn't be loving the world or the things in the world. It's dividing my heart. It's taking away the joy. If you can seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness... Put the Lord first and, and live that life where we lose our life in this world to gain it in the life to come. That is the most joyful, happy life. Godliness with contentment is great gain, right? And, and Paul was the richest man on earth. And he's saying, rejoice with me. Interesting, the way this church began in town. Remember, Paul went through Asia, and he thought he was going to be evangelizing with his team. And he starts to go up in Bithynia. God says no. He goes up in Galatia. God says no. He finally gets all the way over to, uh, to Troas. And, and, and there God, in a dream, says, go across uh, the ocean there to um, Europe, to Macedonia, which in particular, the chief city of Macedonia was Philippi. And he had a dream, a man saying, come over here end up being a woman down at a river outside the city. And it was where the Jews met. And he shared the gospel, baptized them. But ministry really didn't happen in the city until Paul was arrested. And he was beaten badly along with Silas. And they were thrown into prison down in the dungeon and chained. And what did they do at midnight? You guys know the story there in Acts 16, right? They began to sing hymns and worship and praise God. The play was shaken. All the doors opened. The shackles fell off. The Philippian jailer was going to kill himself because, you know, one person gets away. It's his life. Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. Uh, believe on the Lord and you'll be saved in your whole house. And so Paul went to his house and shared the gospel and they believed. And then they left town <laughs> after that. But literally, the gospel was birthed by rejoicing in trials, by rejoicing in particular in persecution. Boy, Jesus taught us this. Peter says, to this we were called. 
But Jesus talked about this so much with his apostles. This is the area he really wanted them to get and understand and not be stumbled by. In Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12, blessed are those, oh, how happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. We've talked about this before in all the 2,000 years of Christendom. There's been not that many people, you know, when you look at the majority of believers throughout the world that were really persecuted for their faith. It's always been a small remnant. And um, when we get to heaven, I, I think those people that were persecuted have a special crown and, and they have a special, you know, sorority they're a part of in heaven. Uh, those who really did get persecuted for their faith. There's others that would have been persecuted for their faith, but uh, they backed off and stopped preaching. They, they went underground, so to speak, uh, not in a good way. In John 15, verse 18 through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember earlier, Jesus in the gospel of Matthew said, beware of the guy that everybody speaks well of him. <laughs> There's something wrong with that guy if everybody speaks well of him. So here he's saying, if you're associated with me, you're going to be guilty by association. In verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In chapter 16 of John, in the first four verses, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think they are offered God's service. You actually think they're doing God's work and will by persecuting you. And these things they will do to you because they do not know the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, as we read in the Gospels on the days of the last moments of the last days, persecution comes to believers, right? Right before the Antichrist is, is come into the, the thing. And I think everything's going to be ready to go. So as soon as the church is raptured, you know, uh, the false media brings out some lie of why we're all disappeared. And the Antichrist is ready to step right in and, uh, and to say peace, peace, and have supernatural powers and, and has all the right words to say, even though there is no peace, but he proclaims it. And... Um, so we, we see there that we, as we begin to head that direction, there's less room for us. There's less room for our message. And eventually, when everybody no longer has an ear to hear, we'll be raptured out of here. When, when there finally comes the place where everybody, 
on the earth that was willing to hear heard. And even those unwilling to hear heard. And there is nobody else that will get born again. The Lord raptures us out of here. And so uh, Jesus says, I don't want you to be stumbled. And, And it's always interesting when you Look in history, when people start getting persecuted, they, they do exactly that. They don't understand the spiritual significance. They're like, well, we are being a little loud. Oh, yeah, we are being anointed. You know, they didn't ask us to share. The one guy said he wasn't interested, and we pushed forward. You know, it, it's not you. Jesus said, it's not you. It's, it's about me. It's about truth. It's about the spiritual world. And of course, no better advice do we get than anybody than James in chapter 1, verse 2 through 5. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work. Listen to where God can mold us even in this, on this earth until we are perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Isn't that amazing? You know, we often think, you know, we're like Archie Bunker, you know, I am what I am, I can't be better than this, you know. Edith, get me a beer, you know. It's just that, no, we, we can continue to progress until we literally are perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And it appears that Paul had come close to that. He wasn't perfect. He said, I'm not perfect, because some people might have thought he was. I think Paul's perfect. No, no, I'm not perfect. Trust me. <laughs> not till I get to heaven. But he looked close to it and he, he, he said, I mean, he said, follow, my, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, he told one church, follow me and the peace of God will be upon you. That's, that's a pretty good walk Paul had there. And so James is saying, um, God can, can continue to sanctify us and shape us to an amazing extent. And in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to them liberally without reproach, and it'll be given to him. So when persecution begins, and it is already begun, I think right now we've sort of adjusted, you know, a little bit. Um, we're not maybe... Um, putting the bumper stickers on our car we used to, or maybe we're not wearing the Christian t-shirt we used to, or maybe we're, you know, not announcing that we are followers of Christ like we used to. We just sort of, sort of slowly realize they don't want to hear it. They don't want to be around it. It's a negative, you know, because all of the the TV preachers and and their hyper-Pentecostal groups have sort of defamed us. Um, and so until I can explain more thoroughly who we really are and we're not like those guys, I just want them to not know I'm a Christian at all. And so I, I think we, we've sort of molded to a place, but eventually we can't mold any further. And we're going to have to push back and say, it may cost me my job. It may cost me my scholarship. It may cost everybody on the block to not want to talk to me. But I, I have to stand for Christ and the truth. I mean, isn't it, isn't it amazing to say homosexuality is a sin, it's a perversion, as if that's a hate crime? There's guys in Canada that have gone to prison for saying that right there. There are guys throughout Europe who are in prison for saying that right there. 
and we're not far behind. And just to simply say there's two genders, period, that's a hate crime. Yeah, we're, we're getting pushed to where we can't fly under the radar anymore. We've got to stand up for our faith, and I just encourage you to do it early, earlier. Remember the apostles in Acts 5.41 when they were persecuted. The first time Christians were ever persecuted for being Christians. It didn't take very long, by the way. But Acts 5.41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the shame for his name. So they, Jesus did well disciple them. He well prepared them. He told them. And the Sermon on the Mount, probably a sermon that we read in Matthew 5 that he preached many times. Rejoice in that day when they hate you, when they speak falsely against you. You said, you're saying the same words I said, and they hated me for it. When you speak those words, why do you think you wouldn't be hated for it? Of course you're going to be hated. But remember, when they're hating on you, and it's hard, the emotional scars are the absolute worst scars. Being rejected, it's, it's the worst scars. It really is. So it's, it's a very hard thing to get that thick skin, to, to, to realize, yeah, I'm being shut out. I'm being closed out. I'm not being invited. I'm not being included because I'm of the stand I'm making for Christ. And um, it's, it's a tough thing. I can remember back in the day, um, several of the older women in the church being shut out because uh, of abortion. And, and they would talk about how horrible it is. People are trying to stop abortion. And then just saying, what do you think? They're like, I believe they're killing a baby. <laughs> and I think killing of a baby is wrong. In the womb, outside the womb, it's a baby. And boy, the, the persecution they got just for saying uh, a baby in the womb is a baby. And uh, they, they got hit really hard. And of course, that was 20 years ago. And of course, now so much more standing for Christ. Well, in verse 19 and 20 now, we're going to go to Timothy. So we just talked about Paul and his rejoicing in the midst of his difficulties. Now we're going to talk about Timothy. In verse 19 and 20, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. He wasn't saying those in Philippi were short. Okay. Hey, shortly. No, he's saying very soon. So I'm sending Timothy to you very soon that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Ouch. Do you, do you hear the put down of those of Luke and Silas and many others that were with the Apostle Paul. No doubt they read this. And, and they're saying, and he's saying, I've literally in all my ministry only had one person who really would step up and preach what I preached and, and live the way I live. Other people, they came short of it. It's interesting how many times Paul has talked about being one in mind as believers, one in mind with Christ, and one in mind with the Apostle Paul and the gospel he preached. You might remember back in Philippians 1.27, he said, stand fast in one spirit with one mind. 
striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in Philippians 2, the first five verses, he says it several times. Um, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there's only one guy who's really of the same mind as I'm in the same mind with Christ, and this person is in the same mind with me and Christ. And man, I could just imagine an entire church who's of the same mind. But Paul says, I haven't even had that amongst those who are apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers in my small group. We haven't got there of the same mind. Interesting that Paul would say such a thing. But he says, first of all, the distinction is that Timothy sincerely cares for your state. That Timothy put the church interests, the needs of the church, the wants of the church, way before himself. That he was dedicated to meet the needs of the church and to put his own needs and interests behind. Jesus was trying to get Peter in that mindset. Remember when Peter said, what about the future? What about the apostle John? What about... And remember at the end in, in, Acts, or in John 21, Jesus said, Peter, 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 do you love me? Yeah, yes, Lord, I love you. Then just feed my sheep. Well, what about John? What about the few? Peter, Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Well, what about this? What? Okay, the first two times you said, do you agape me? The third time you just said, philo, which is, are you even... A, a friend associated with me. Are we friendly? Are we, are, are we on friendly terms? And at that point, Peter was grieved. And he said, Lord, you know I love you. Then he said, feed my sheep. You want to love me? Put the church's interest before your own interest, Peter. You really want to love me? then focus on loving the sheep by you being called as an apostle, a pastor, a teacher. If you will love the sheep, you are loving me. But if you're not loving the sheep, you're not loving me. The way you love Jesus on earth is by loving one another, right? And and John says plainly, don't walk around saying, I love God, I love God, and you have something against your brother. It's impossible. He said that, math, that mathematical equation never exists. If you have bitterness or frustration or anger towards somebody else, you do not love God. John, 1 John, just plain out says it. Can't, it can't exist. If you love God, then you'll see it in your love for one another. Jesus came down to say, the whole world will know you're my disciples if you love, not the world, just one another. So again, it's it's a big hurdle just to love those who are in the body of Christ and in your fellowship. Later on, Peter would write 
In 1 Peter 5, verse 22-4, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as by being lords over those who entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. So Peter, within his lifetime, within a few decades after Christ died and rose again, is having to tell the people in the church that, that they can't have dual motives for being pastors, teachers, apostles. That their single motive is just to love Christ and by fulfilling their ministry. And if they can keep on track, there'll be a special crown in heaven. And of course, um, Peter points out that, uh, you know, I don't know if we really did the right thing for our family in following you. Because we left our family. We shut down our business. We haven't been there for Mother's Day or Father's Day. Uh, we haven't been there when there's family crises. We, we completely, solely followed you. And uh, we're, we're having doubts about whether we should have had such a single focus. And in Luke 18, verse 28 to 30, Peter said, talking to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many more times in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So he says, yeah, you're not going to regret, but yes. And I know having four kids and being a pastor and traveling, uh, around the world uh, to, to meet needs. I just, there's always that question. You know, should I be here for my kids' baseball game or should I be at a pastor's conference in Europe? And, uh, and it was always a, a challenge to make sure. And I, these are the very verses I came to going, okay, Lord, there is a time that we do sacrifice things that uh, should not be sacrificed to fulfill your ministry and especially to meet the needs of the church. And the Lord says, yeah, that's true. In Philippians 2.21, going back, he says, all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. So once again, he's scolding those other fellow companions. We see very clearly how it played out there in chapter 4 of Timothy. Where was his fellow companions? He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me. All forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me. So the, Paul wasn't wrong about these guys. Although they're, they've been with him almost his whole ministry, Luke and Silas and Titus and, and others, when it really came down to uh, you could be put to death for associating with Paul, they, uh, they hid. We see in 2 Timothy 4 that he said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed. And he said in particular, they're not seeking the things of Christ. Remember, a lot of things that can weaken us are not wrong, they're amoral. It just depends on what they are to you and to your life, right? I mean, you could have money 
And that's a good thing, but that money could become your God. And now it's a bad thing. But also we see in Timothy that there's just this heart of yieldedness and submission to follow Paul and to minister his needs like none other. Here's a great quote. Sometimes it's not hard to fall into a calloused heart where you stop caring for others. We get hurt, so we don't want to get hurt anymore. And we need to be careful that we don't stop caring. That's when we lose our usefulness to the Lord. As human beings, we're a bunch of porcupines, right? We just go around poking each other and causing each other to bleed. And sometimes the closer you get, the deeper we poke, right? That's just human nature, fallen human nature. We can't let that hurt stop us from doing the ministry of the Lord. Well, in verse 22 here, we're almost finished up. And you know his proven character, that as a son with the father, he served with you in the gospel. Matter of fact, right after Timothy started following Paul, in Acts 16, he got circumcised and left his mother and grandmother to follow Paul. In that same chapter, in, in chapter 16, verse 12, they went to Philippi and stayed there for some days. So they actually saw Timothy when he just started in the ministry with Paul. But then later on, in Acts 19, Paul sent Timothy uh, and Erastus to, to them to minister to them for a season while Paul went to state in Asia ministering. And then in Acts chapter 20, uh, once again, Timothy was a part of the whole team that went down to that Macedonia area and they ministered for some time. And so they have seen, they have seen his character. They have seen his faithfulness as Paul talks about. You, you know very well what kind of character Timothy has. You've observed it for quite some time. And then he says, as a son, he has served with me in the gospel. There is a respect, a submission. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says this, the submissive mind is not the product of an hour sermon or a week seminar or even a year's service. The submission mind grows in us as like Timothy, we yield to the Lord and seek to serve others. Isn't that, isn't that so true? For Timothy to have this yielded and submitted spirit to Paul, who God put in his life, the father of his faith, but also his pastor. He's actually submitting to the Lord. We know that, don't we? The Bible says that several times, that when you look at even at the civil authority, they're from God. And if you're breaking their rules, it's because you're breaking God's rules. It's, it can get sort of dicey because there are times we do rebel against man's authority, but uh, we take it at face value at first that, yes, we need to submit to those in authority till they prove otherwise. But in verse 23 and 24, therefore I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself also will come shortly. So Paul says, my situation's in flux. I need to know what house I'm gonna end up in so you know where to find me so I can send letters and receive letters. And right now I'm in flux. He might've been moving houses. Uh, we don't know. But he says, when Timothy does come, I want you to receive him. And 
Timothy didn't always have that good of experience when he traveled without Paul. Matter of fact, you guys might remember in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talks about an instant in verse 10 and 11. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. And he does the work of the Lord as I also do. He is equal to me uh, in the ministry. And he goes on to say there, therefore, do not despise him. The church was. <laughs> but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. <clears throat> in many cases, Timothy was traveling because of his youth. He looked young. Paul told young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, don't, do, don't let anybody despise your youth. Push back. But just be an even greater example of one who walks in faith, in love, in spirit, and in purity. But um, Timothy often did not get the respect that he deserved. And uh, Paul here is warning him of that. But once I know how it goes, since my situation is a little more stabilized, I'm sending him right away. Because sending Timothy to you is exactly like if I were there with you. Wow, what a statement to make. And then we finally come to Epaphroditus, who was uh, a part of the original church there in Philippi. He says, yet I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my needs. In verse 26, since he has, was longing for you and distressed because you heard that he was sick. So I, I absolutely know it's necessary to send him. I don't want to send him because he uniquely ministers to me. He's sort of my pastor is what he's saying as we're going to go on here. And I don't want to, but, but you heard that he was sick and you heard uh, that maybe even died. You guys got some faulty information. So I need you to see him face to face. But before we talk more about that in, in verses 27 to 30, Paul says five things about Paphroditus. First of all, he says he's my brother. There is in life, not everybody, matter of fact, I think it only happens to a very small percentage of people where you meet somebody and you are a brother and it feels like the same mother, right? It feels like we are truly brothers. We have true kindred spirits and, and it feels like we have always been together because we see things so much alike. Well, I think that's just God's mercy drops of blessing on us when such things happen. David had that with Jonathan, right? And Paul had that here with Epaphroditus. And he also is a fellow worker. The King James says companion in labor. The word here, um, sumo ergos, is we get our word synergy from it. So it's an equal skill. It's sort of like one part of the machine working with another part of a machine, creating the widget, you know, that we're a part of that. We just work together. He finishes my sentences and I finish his. And then he says he's a fellow soldier, a warrior. He's, he's not some um, wimpy guy. Remember, Timothy was sort of timid. We learned that in 2 Timothy, but not Epaphroditus. This guy is a warrior like Paul. And he says he's your messenger. The word here is apostle. It's basically the verb for apostle. 
He is an apostle on your behalf, sending the message to me and to others throughout the world. And then the fifth thing he says there, and the one who ministered to my needs. It's, it's the word, let or ghosts, which we get our word um, liturgy from. Literally, he's saying he's a priest or a Levite. He's a spiritual leader to me. So I'm, I'm giving up the guy that really strengthens me while I'm here in prison. I'm giving him up to go and send and minister to you. So he's letting him, letting him know, I'm sending Timothy to you, which is a guy just like me. And I'm sending Epaphroditus, who's like my pastor. <laughs> and, and we are brothers, and, and, to, and to lose him is like losing half of me. But I'm sending both of these guys to come to minister to you. And then the final three verses, verse 27 to 30. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, but to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. We're going to find out that the church in Philippi was literally, out of all the churches Paul started, the only church that financially and, and sent other material needs to help Paul in prison. Remember in chapter 1, we read where there were so many men going out preaching and a part of their sermon would be to put down Paul and his gospel of grace. Well, we find in the last letter Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, he says, all in Asia, which is where he started most churches, have forsaken me. And most of them had horrible things to say about the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? In his lifetime, all the churches he started, he had them poo-pooing him. And right to the end, those that were to be there to close and support him, even Luke and Titus and Timothy and Silas, they all forsook him. Interesting that you wouldn't expect that, that Paul would be a hero as he is to us today, but not in his lifetime. But I want you to receive him with all gladness. And then the final thought, you should esteem respect, honor such men. Paul talks about this a few times in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourself. And then Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule or lead over you to be submissive. They watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. Well, Lord, we thank you for these words as we meditate on them. We know that some parts of the Bible are 
greatly devotional and others, we just got to wade through them and, and glean what your spirit is saying to the church today. So many different thoughts as we look at Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And all we can do is come and lay our life before you, Lord. And say, search our heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way, and, and we would say compromising way. If we are double-hearted, Lord, we're double-minded, Lord, fix our heart to be of the one mind with Christ, of the singular mind with Apostle Paul and his doctrine, and, and that we would be the Timothy here in our fellowship, that we would be the one that, who are leaders in this church in particular, that are loving the body of Christ, knowing that's the most important job we have on earth. We just yield before you now, Lord, and just ask you to search our hearts, see if there be any wicked, compromising, weak, double-minded way in us, and cleanse us and heal us and lead us in the way of everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.